Now might be the perfect time to invest in your education. If you have work experience and would like to return to study part-time for a diploma or degree in business, consider joining UCD Quinn School. Our flexible program means you can continue working whilst undergoing your studies. Find out more at ucd.ie forward slash Quinn and search part-time courses. UCD Lachlan Quinn School of Business. Developing impactful business leaders. everybody, I'm Chloe Maidley and welcome back to the podcast series three. For those of you that don't know, this is the podcast where I speak to professional athletes, coaches, physique competitors and all experts in the field of health and fitness. I'm really excited that you guys are joining me. So without further ado, here we go. Hello everybody and welcome back to series three of the podcast. Now, before I introduce my next guest, I feel a bit of background is probably necessary here. When I first started the podcast, I pitched several names to my producers, all of whom were across the pond. Because of audio worries, all of the names were denied. So I kept my guest list firmly within UK waters throughout series one and two. However, the silver lining of national lockdown is that Zoom is now all the range and I've managed to get not only one, not two, but three of my international heroes on the podcast. And here today is the second of them. And I cannot tell you how excited I am to have her on. Holly Baxter is a two times natural world champion fitness model. She has a master's of science degree in dietetics. She's an active nutrition and physique coach. She's the director of nutrition at BioLane. She's an Instagram force to be reckoned with. And I will just be very honest here. She's been a massive hero of mine um, and my favorite YouTube channel for years now. Holly Baxter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm so happy you're here. I just feel like my I when I reached out to Holly over Instagram, guys, I said to her, like, I just want to have people on who know way more than me, who my audience can learn from. And Holly is one of those people. So I guess, do you just want to introduce yourself to my audience and just tell everybody who you are and what you do? Sure. Okay. I'll try and keep it uh, somewhat short. Um, okay. I have definitely grown up with a very sporty background. So as a kid, track athletics, basketball, I think my parents put us in every single sport you could think of. Um, so I just grew up loving exercise straight up. I guess once you get to high school or college, there's always a bit of pressure, I guess, to decide what you're going to do for your real job. So (laughs) unfortunately, um, living in Australia as a female, um, having a career in sport isn't really an option um, as far as like a career is concerned. You might be able to compete for Australia in the Olympics or play overseas basketball or something like that. But as far as that becoming a reality, in my opinion, it seemed quite low at the time. So instead Mm. of pursuing a career in sport, I thought, well, what's the next best thing? Maybe I can be an educator um, in either sport or nutrition or something to do with health. So uh, I went off and did my undergraduate degree in food science and nutrition. And that actually kind of stemmed out of probably a a troublesome kind of place as a a young teenager and a, a young sportswoman. And I actually, I had an eating disorder. Um, I had terrible anorexia, uh, bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder, kind of 
throughout my teen years and that definitely played into my selection for um, you know undergraduate degree when I was trying to choose my my career so it kind of founded on some unsteady landscape but thankfully it kind of grew I, I grew out of that and it definitely led me down the pathway of wanting to learn more about the science of nutrition um, you know, exercise and sports science and, you know, optimizing people's performance and their abilities just to obtain a, a physique that they really wanted to, but in a way that wasn't the, the way that I had learned it growing up. So after I graduated from um, food science, nutrition, definitely developed a huge love for food and eating in general now that I kind of knew the right, knew the lay of the land a little bit more, but I also felt like I knew nothing. So I actually took a break from school and went off and did a full-time job in a completely different career. Um, I was actually in um, new home sales and um, land sales as a, a sales consultant, <laughs> <laughs> which was kind of pressured by the boyfriend I guess I was seeing at the time but I quickly realized where my my uh, love was and true passion lied and I went back and did my master's in dietetics so that was another two-year um, degree and from there I have had various positions as a clinical dietitian um, I had my own practice and that kind of started to gravitate more towards people that were interested in sport um, and that were kind of more like-minded um, I did find that working in clinical was very difficult because you're constantly faced with people that really, for the most part, don't care about their health. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't relate to that. And I found it very morbid, in fact. So as much of an experience as that was kind of working in a hospital setting and working with such a diverse range of different patients, I definitely knew that I wanted to stick in the space of nutrition and exercise. So, yeah, yeah I, I now have um, a couple of different businesses that kind of fall into that space. We have a, a team of coaches, um, which is the team BioLane coaches. Um, we have a supplement company, which, of course, is based on evidence-based um, ingredients and efficacious dosings. And then we also have a fantastic new app, which launched just 12 months ago, almost uh, to the day, Carbon Diet Coach. So it's a very advanced program that coaches people for fat loss and reverse dieting, um, muscle building, and also just to help people learn how to maintain their body weight. Okay, so you touched on it there, and I wasn't going to actually ask you until a little bit further into it. But in, in the UK, and I don't know if this is true for Australia or America where you are now, but there's this whole weird thing about women in the health and fitness industry. Typically, we have to be more lifestyle. You know, like you drink your green shake and you go for a nice walk at sunrise and you do some meditation. And it's just like, okay, I don't fall into that category. I fall into like quite hardcore, like training goals. I'm very goal driven. And I feel like as soon as you stand up as a woman and say that to a female audience, you're kind of being distasteful in a way or, or shaming other women. And it's really difficult. Like it's a really hard line to kind of straddle um, as a coach. And anyway, this is kind of how I found you and absolutely fell in love with your content. And I know that you've struggled with binge eating disorder, like even throughout preps and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you, is that something that you still struggle with now? Um, how do you deal with it? And how do you kind of coach clients who I'm sure you have who are dealing with the similar things? Yeah, so that's, so, there's so much in that. Um, and I hope I don't answer this in too much of a long winded way, but. No, go um, talk. So I guess from a little bit of a, 
a history perspective just so that your audience kind of knows where I'm coming from. I competed at a very high level um, in track athletics um, as a teenager and the coach that I had at the time, I won't say who it was, but he actually was also the coach of the current um, Olympian 400 meter track runner for Australia. And she won, yeah, she obviously won the Olympics in 2000 and had placed very highly in um, years to come. But there was a lot of pressure on me as one of his athletes to kind of back it up and be, um, you know, well, she does this and Kathy does that and Kathy looks a certain way as well. And now, Holly, you know, you're carrying a little bit more body fat and I don't think that's, you know, productive or going to help you with your endeavours to be a 100 and 200 metre sprinter. So kind of there was something about that comment um, and I know it was said multiple times in different ways and it never was intended to be, you know, nasty or anything like that. He was like a wonderful person um, generally, but I think words are very powerful to young people. um, And that definitely um, was kind of one of the tipping points amongst other things in my personal life as a a young girl that really led me down the belief that, you know, my body is kind of, that's what I wear. This is who I am. And if it is not um, perfect, then there's something wrong with me. And um, I kind of carried that with me for a very long time and it it definitely led to a lot of um, self-esteem issues, uh, lack of confidence, lack of desire to be loved, not wanting to put myself out there and, you know, really truly be who I was. And I I was a young, like a beautiful young girl and I think I was made to feel really bad um, about that from family members and just people that were kind of in and out of my day-to-day life. So I struggled with um, all of those things for several years. So I went through a very uh, difficult traumatic experience in my youth and spent a bit of time in hospital, in fact. I know this is quite deep, but I'm getting to a point with it. But I suffered from very bad depression, and that whole experience stayed with me for years. So um, I I continued to struggle with bulimia, I think, for about 10 years, if I'm being very honest. Um, And that was still at its worst, I would say, during the the times specifically that I would be competing. And, you know, if you think about how the human body is designed, when you're creating a deficit and you're under energy restriction, it's not just something that you kind of see on the outside. There's a lot of hormonal changes that are going on as well. So I I know at the time I would have had incredibly low leptin levels, which is one of our appetite regulating hormones, and it's driving you to eat. And I would go through multiple phases of, you know, restricting for the competitions, trying to do my very best, but then um, just really struggling with the fact that, hey, I have a very busy lifestyle. I also need to eat and I'm also doing a lot of exercise. So I think there was a lot of shame in the early like my 20s, I'm 32 now, just so that you know. So my early 20s, um, there was a lot of guilt because I was qualified as a dietitian. I am the nutrition expert. I am the person that people go to, to have, you know, help with this, you know, with my body composition. And I think at the time I felt like, well, here's me. I'm the one that's meant to have all the answers and all the knowledge. And I'm struggling with this myself. And I, I felt so much shame in that, that I didn't want to get help. Um, so I, I kind of carried that with me for such a long time and really it's only until probably my most recent relationship or now whom I'm married to that mm. it kind of dawned on me how toxic my um, relationship was with food, 
um, and how how much it was negatively impacting my life. So really in the last four years is when I actually started to get some professional help. And I wish, I wish that I had have gone and gotten that same help back when I was 20 years old, because I probably would be a very different person um, than I am today. But it's, it's also taught me a lot. And I think that I definitely can relate to the people that I've worked, I work with now and have worked with in the past. Um, and it's been a tool for me to kind of really connect with them um, in quite an intimate way and then provide them with valuable tools to kind of um, help them, you know, work through however or whatever it is that they're feeling. That's not too deep at all. You're just <laughs> human. You're just human. And it's interesting because I, I always found on your YouTube channel when you would talk about this and obviously Lane would be speaking to you about it, the openness was so refreshing and it was it was helpful, like really, really helpful because I, I feel you on the pressure thing. You know, you get to a point where you're like, everybody expects me to look a certain way and everybody expects me to be able to execute myself in a certain manner and at the end of the day we're all just human and we're all just trying our best and it's I, I and I actually said in the original question that I, you know before I kind of jumped the gun and asked you early mm-hmm. I said um, I think people assume it's not something that people in the health and fitness industry deal with but if anything it's far more common amongst our people than anyone else I've been in hospital three separate times. One was the big three-week stay in the coma. Number two was the nerve damage diagnosis. Number three was a surprise attack out of nowhere, and I couldn't breathe properly. You know, perfectly healthy 17-year-old, no underlying conditions. It's crazy. Behind every case, there's a story. Protect yourself and each other. Be antiviral. Hear more at antiviralireland.com. Supported by the Government of Ireland. Acast recommends podcasts we love. I'm Sam Bungie, one of the hosts of West Cork, a story about a community on the far south coast of Ireland that became a kind of paradise for people looking for a fresh start. And nobody knew their past. You could be who you wanted to be rather than who you really were. Then one newcomer was murdered and another was suspected of doing it. I see him in the market and really he's always trying to be normal and trying to get people to like him. But we all know. Listen to West Cork now on Acast. Acast powers the world's best podcasts, including the Irish History Podcast, The Two Johnnies, and the one you're listening to right now. So I suppose that kind of brings me on to to my next question are you still competing now like do you have goals to compete in in another competition or are you just kind of sitting sitting out for a minute and feeling out the ground right now at this very moment I'm not um prepping for anything and I have not considered it so um yeah I mean I started competing in 2015 and that's where I kind of went to worlds won a couple of world uh titles which was just incredible and truly like yeah the only reason that it went down that pathway was because of the travel opportunities um, that were kind of associated (laughs) with the IMBA. So World Championships was in Dubai. And I think most Australians, we love to travel. So I was like, right, well, you know, it just means I have to win. So of course, off I went, did my shows, (laughs) won the nationals. All right, okay, going to Dubai. (laughs) So um, after that, uh, I kind of realized that there is kind of a caliber to the quality of competitors that you are, um, you know, going up against. And I realized, you know, I'm investing a lot of my time in 
the gym and my health and in myself, um, well, then let's make sure that I'm kind of competing against the best. So I did uh, compete for two years with the IFBB. So I was a little bit too muscular for bikini and I would have had to have stopped training um, the way that I like to train like you. I like to get in the gym and go hard. (laughs) I'm definitely competitive and probably an angry person when I'm (laughs) in the gym, but I'm definitely not angry at heart. But, um, yeah, I wanted to make sure that I was was doing all that work um, to, to go up against the best. So... I did a figure for two years. Um, the best ranking that I placed was second at nationals in Australia, um, but kind of quickly realised if I was to do that at an international level, so coming over, especially here to the USA, um, to compete against the figure girls and being a, it's an untested federation, I am a lifetime drug-free competitor and I had no intentions of getting to the point of muscularity Um, where the figure girls were winning. And I was like, well, why am I doing this if I'm actually not going to be the best at it? That's definitely my mindset. It's like I'm not going in this to, you know, just have a good old time. Like there's a lot lot at stake here. (laughs) So, yeah, I I have been competing with the WBFF in fitness now and have won several, um, I guess, state shows. And then I went to Worlds uh, in 2019, which was in the Bahamas, Uh, and placed in the top five. So um, that was an awesome achievement. And to the date, that is still my best physique. And I'm so, so incredibly proud of that. But my life has been... insane, Holly. (laughs) Insane. Like just, we'll get onto it, but just so ridiculously impressive (laughs) for a natural female athlete. I was just in awe. Anyway, carry on. Yeah. So um, to get that lean is very challenging. That was kind of where I was going with that. So... (laughs) trying to do competitions and invest in it the way that I know I want to be able to commit to it was starting to become very um, taxing on my life. Um, I remember last when I was writing the book for Reverse Dieting Guide, um, Lane and I wrote that together and there were moments where I remember just sitting in my office starting getting the computer out and writing the chapters and I just would sit here and I would just start crying I was like, I can't believe, like I'm sitting here at 11 o'clock at night and I can't even form or string a sentence together. I'm so physically and mentally exhausted from this prep. As much as I have the desire to go back and get a crown and I really believe that I could, (laughs) I think it's um, certainly something that the timing has to be right. Uh, And right now, I'll never say I'm not going back to it, but right now that's not my uh, my main focus. No, and this is it. This is something me and one of my coaching partners, uh, Emma, talk about a lot is cost benefit. Sometimes you have to step back from life and say, of course I want to look like that. And of course I want to win that title. But actually, what am I going to have to give up to get there? And is it actually going to be worth it? And that's applicable to every single person with a goal in life. And sometimes you'll have a perfect storm where you're like, fuck yeah, I'm in, let's go. Mm-hmm. But let's be honest, most of the time you're going to be like, oh, you know what? It's just the wrong time right now. And and But that's why it's important to always ask yourself those questions and, and be open to setting challenges to yourself. But I've watched you kind of be stage ready a few times and it's it's incredible to me the physique that you you bring to the stage um and also the fact that you've been training you know I think you've been training for what nine ten eleven years somewhere in that bracket I was gonna ask you that how are you finding it having effective muscle hypertrophy occur as you get older your training age I mean specifically gets older Mm -hmm. and how is your training how did it start and how has it had to change in terms of your programming periodization and focus on progressive overload so 
I think like every woman, <laughs> we probably start <laughs> out somewhere in a gym maybe, but as a group fitness class, I can't tell you the number of maybe Zumba classes I might do on the weekend, or I would go in and do like a Les Mills, uh, is it Body Pump? And Body stuff pump, like yeah. that, because I was really intimidated, I think, going into the gym, like when I first started, I'm thinking back when I was like 10 years ago, 2021, 20, whatever. Um, so it started there. And I think um, I didn't really have somebody to guide me in that direction because it wasn't really what I was interested in. I yeah. just kind of liked being fit and sporty. And I liked the fact that I could, <laughs> someone told me to do 20 push ups, I could do them. If you said run 5K, I could do that and I could sprint. So I just liked being nice and pushing my body from a cardiovascular standpoint. I did way too much cardio for looking back the, the goal body that I wanted. I have been like strength training specifically now for, I would say, what are we, 2021. I'd say six years. I can say that my training has been correct for my goals, but more recently, um, I had started to incorporate more strength-based training. So I've always done your typical bodybuilder style, hypertrophy rep ranges, but I never really wanted to go anywhere near, you know, a one rep max. That's for sure. I think even six reps, I was like, what are we doing people? <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> it was just like the people that I knew that did that were like, Olympic level weightlifters. I'm like, nah, that's yeah. not what I want to look like. But you know, that's me stereotyping. So 2017 was the first year I competed in powerlifting. And that's thanks to my husband, Lane Norton. <laughs> so yeah. he really kind of opened my eyes to the fact that, hey, you can be really strong and you won't look like uh, a 300 pound male. That's definitely been one of the biggest um, assists, I would say, when it comes to achieving my body composition that I have now, because until you truly know what you're capable of performing for a one rep max, I don't think you really have a um, appreciation for what you can then also do at higher rep ranges. So, you yes. know, once I realized I could do X on the squat, I was like, oh, wow. Well, for eight reps, geez, I've been a long way off what I probably could do. And then my training definitely started to incorporate more like intensity focus. So, you know, you're going in and you're looking at repetitions um, in reserve or a rate of perceived exertion. Now you've got something to compare it to from a one rep max. Then my training really started to kind of take on new meaning. And that's when I started to see the biggest changes in my muscularity because I was pushing myself you know, using the weights that actually facilitated growth that I needed. <laughs> and I love that because I think for so long, the focus on like really optimizing your both your physique and your performance in the gym, it was so heavily focused on volume and intensity was very much reserved for strength, exactly how, you, how you've just said. But mm -hmm. until you can determine actually how strong you really, really are until like you're, you're done, like you reach absolute failure then how would you possibly know how much you can push yourself? And I, I'm a big believer in switching up with clients between, you know, doing much more kind of the bodybuilding a lot. Obviously, most of my clients are really into physique stuff. That's why yes. they're with me. But I'm, I push them to be like, no, there, there have to be training blocks built in here where we can determine how strong you are so that we can push for progressive overload, get you training properly and get you the results you want. You touch on Lane there. And I've got a couple of questions about you and him because mm -hmm. you really remind me of my husband and I. I've seen some <laughs> I of your um, Instagram videos 
Crimson Post actually when you reached out to me and I was like, oh, she's funny. They look, they're a good team. <laughs> well, okay. I mean, you're an Aussie, so you understand rugby players. He's like an England rugby boy. And so he's got a mouth on him and he's got an opinion on him. And he's not afraid to shout about it. Like so much so that he's actually lost me clients before because he's quite contentious. And I'm like, oh God, please rein it in. But I suppose the first thing I actually, this is just of like a fan of you question. How did you meet Lane? Um, well, he was doing a tour in Australia. So that was in 20, I think 2016. He was also invited to, um, I guess, be a speaker at the Arnold's. So uh, oh, yeah. one, of my, one of my good friends from undergraduate years who was living in Melbourne, which is where the Arnold's Australia is held, gave me a phone call, sent me an email one day and was like, oh, would you mind coming down to help me out at the expo? I'm going to be um, having my products being sold there. So he actually has a, a company called Iron Tanks. Um, they make a lot of um, training belts, lifting accessories. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, all the hardcore stuff, which I just loved. And I was like, yes, of course. And he said, well, you know, I kind of – I have a male that's coming to work at the booth. Uh, I also would like a female to come and, you know, speak to the people and help out, blah, blah, blah. And then um, a couple of days later he sends me an email. It's like, oh, you might know him actually. It's uh, Dr. Lane Norton. And I'm like, oh. Yeah, of course I know who that is. I follow all this stuff and that was right about the time when he was blowing up with the reverse, the concept. He kind of coined the concept of reverse dieting. Um, I know. So I was like, oh, my God, yes, this is great. It's such an awesome opportunity. I'm going to come down and interview him. I still never got that interview, but we really just kind of connected on so many levels. Um, and, yeah, it kind of went from there. But sadly, like he was obviously still living in America at the time and was also just about to go through a pretty um, uncomfortable divorce. So um, it was very rocky and very challenging to do distance and have all of that stress going on. But we worked it out oh. and we're still here five years later loving life. So that's how we I met. mean, you guys... You guys are awesome. I, and this is one of the questions I, I had for you is because obviously I work a lot with my husband too. And I've just, you know, articulated <laughs> what he's like. I was going to ask you that obviously you and Lane work super, super close together. And I know that for James and I, we have days where when we're working together, like it's so awful and awkward and uncomfortable because you want to fucking kill each other. And then we have days where it's like the best days work ever. Cause like we we're like basically working with our best mate. I wanted to ask you like, how do you find working with your husband? Like, do you have the good days and bad days or is it just straight yeah. up? Yeah. feel better. <laughs> that is such a good question. Um, yes. And that it is really challenging. Like we have several um, companies kind of together so I think something that we have gotten very good at over the time, and I would say Lane's always been a very respectful person anyway, and I really try to yeah. keep them separate, like business is business and our personal life is our personal life, but they do kind of yeah. bleed into each other, especially like, you know, your dinner dates, it's a date night, you're going to talk about business but because uh, well, we're both very yeah. passionate about it. But for the most part, we don't really see each other. We have separate offices. So this, like where I am right now, this is my office, and then he has his little space and we're kind of pretty busy throughout the day. So there's not a lot of time that we actually get to connect. And in fact, we always joke because we're sometimes just ships passing in the night. You know, it's like, tag, yeah. all right, you've got the kids today. Okay, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> um, sorry. We don't have too many, but I think we have different experiences in business. And I'm very OCD and like to be structured and um, Lane yeah. could not be more opposite. And a lot of, unfortunately, I feel like I've allowed for that behaviour over the years and <laughs> yes. I feel like it's 
it's not something that you want in business. <laughs> so yes. we're kind of trying to right ring now, out of him. Yes, just moving back into a place where there is a different working environment and hopefully a positive one. So yeah, of course we have our moments, but I think we always get back together at the night and uh, you know, that's oh, yeah. business. All right, let's just take that hat off for a second. Apologize if there was one needed and move on. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. So James and I have, we're in a second lockdown now in the UK. I mean, it's like kicking our ass. We've been in lockdown for the best part of nearly a full year now. Oh and um, as soon as lockdown hit, I'm like you, OCD. Boxes got to get ticked. I got to get shit done. I'm moving from one thing to the next and that's it. And James is the exact opposite. He'll like start something, won't finish it, leave it undone, move around. Like if he comes into our little garage gym when I'm training, he's big. Like he's six foot five, like 20 stone. I'm like, mm-hmm. I, you're in my way. Like you are in my way. And we had to learn really quickly, like, okay, we need to be separate here. We work in separate rooms. We train at different times of day. That's that. And that is the key. Otherwise, if lockdown hadn't hit, I mean, I don't, it it would have been probably just like a whole lifetime of hell on earth working together. Yeah. Okay, so you just touched on this and I'm so happy that you did because in the UK right now, there are some coaches who uh, really don't believe in reverse dieting, who really don't believe in uh, metabolic adaptation even being a thing. <laughs> and it really, really pisses me off because of the amount of research coming out about it and how much there is to talk about. So much so that I, I got so angry that in a fit of rage, I reached out to Dr. Bill Campbell and I basically just got him on to speak about this in order to basically prove a point. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So, okay. So, do you want to just talk my audience through uh, things like? Uh, what happens with metabolic adaptation when you have been dieting for a long time and or you're very lean refeed days diet breaks and reverse dieting and how all of these things melt in together and and what happens and why mm-hmm. that's a lot <laughs> okay so <laughs> all right I guess let's start off with you use the word metabolic adaptation so um, basically uh, for people that are chronically dieting or even just for a a short period. And again, that can be defined by like the degree of the deficit and the duration and like where they're starting from, what's their body composition when they begin. (laughs) Uh, All those things kind of play into this. But, you know, the longer you have been dieting, essentially, um, the more time your metabolism is basically getting to adapt to those lower calories. And I kind of like to explain it as though um, if you compare it, it's like comparing a really economical car like a little, I don't know, an energy zappy car that doesn't require a lot of fuel to run versus like your big diesel engine. And it just chews through, you know, the fuel, like it's going out of fashion. So um, metabolic adaptation kind of reminds me of like an economical car. So like the longer you've been dieting, the more efficient your body is becoming um, in order to continue to do the amount of work that you would do on a day-to-day basis. So That's why we have so many people kind of expressing the concerns that I am currently eating 1100 calories or I'm only eating a thousand calories a day and I'm doing all this exercise, but somehow now I can't lose any more weight and I'm just stuck here. So part of the reason that our metabolism um, or our energy requirements go down um, during fat loss and for the most part, it can be attributed to just decreases in lean body mass. So unfortunately, the, the way most people typically diet, if they're not being coached by someone that's educated, is it's usually very extreme. The deficit is quite large. 
Um, and we know that beyond a certain percentage, um, let's say if you're dieting and losing more than like 1.5% of your body weight per week, now you're actually increasing the risk of lean tissue loss, not just fat loss. So most people do diet aggressively because people are impatient. I'm guilty of this too, but for the most part, everyone wants their fat loss off yesterday. So they'll do it really extremely. Um, the deficit's huge. And then they end up also losing a lot of lean body mass as a result of that. So now they've also got um, reduced total energy requirements because they've lost muscle. But the the adaptation part kind of comes in because if we look at their statistics, their body composition and those numbers on paper and use some of the equations um, to kind of determine someone's basal metabolic rates, it still doesn't quite add up. The The deficit or the, the restricted calories that they're now eating are still lower than what would otherwise be predicted based on their current lean body mass and activity levels. So it is a, it is a problem. Um, and I think the degree of which kind of depends on um, how lean somebody is getting as well. So um, for somebody that starts off their fat loss phase and they have a baseline higher level of body fat, they're probably not going to be at quite as much risk um, of that uh, loss of lean mass. And that's because they have yeah. caloric cushioning. They've got adipose tissue available um, as an energy substrate. Um, should they you yeah. know, not come into food, which is usually intentional when you're dieting, but they do have a reserve of energy there to kind of continue um, you know, movement and activity. So yeah. the leaner we get, however, when our body fat percentage is getting lower, and this is more in the case of the people, the clients, a lot of the people we are working with, um, they don't have those large reserves of adipose tissue to provide energy anymore. So they are at much greater risk when they diet um, of losing or tapping into their own protein stores as that energy substrate. To argue that someone is saying that metabolic adaptation isn't happening that seems very um, narrow-minded, knowing the number of studies that we have now that have been able to prove, um, you know, the lean body mass loss isn't just what's happening here. It's the degree of adaptation or the, the caloric deficit is greater than what we can predict. A brilliant, brilliant uh, answer. Okay, so right now we've covered the metabolic adaptation part of it. Do you want to quickly talk about reverse dieting? Well, how you would implement it and why you would implement it? Yep. So for a lot of people that have been dieting in the ways that I've just described, you know, quite aggressive, um, fairly extreme um, rates of weight loss in short periods of time, I guess these people's metabolisms have adapted. Not everybody. I think some people think that their metabolism is somehow broken or it's been um, slowing in some ways. But there's also a, a lot of like tracking errors and other reasons that somebody <laughs> may not actually, you know, need to necessarily do a reverse diet. They may be perfectly fine. But for those that are, and there is a good percentage of these people, um, the reverse diet um, basically helps restore their, their metabolic rate to their um, fullest potential. So by increasing calories very slowly and conservatively uh, over time, um, we're able to drive somebody's metabolism in a positive direction with very little changes to their body weight. So I think a lot of women, if they have dieted before, because there's been a, such a degree of restriction, and then we have major decreases in some of those appetite regulating hormones, it's often very difficult for people just to go back to eating a normal amount of calories. 
So at the end of a diet, what most people do, not everybody, but most people tend to go overboard because they've restricted and it's been so extreme they then yeah. go crazy and they, and they now they have not only a slowed metabolism, now they're eating, you know, thousands of calories above what their new predicted maintenance calories are that they yeah. put on body fat so quickly. I kind of think about it as like a sponge in that situation. People kind of bounce back and forth between a body weight that they kind of like and a body that they really dislike and never make any progress. But if they implemented a reverse diet where they can conservatively and slowly over time get their calories back up and allow their metabolism to adapt the same way that it does when we restrict calories, it adapts, Mm -hmm. you know, they will have far better outcomes and they can get their daily calories back up to something that's far more sustainable that permits them to go out and, you know, have cocktails with the girls and order whatever they want off the menu as opposed to I should just eat this salad because it's the lowest calorie thing on the menu. (laughs) So (laughs) it definitely permits people a lot more flexibility um, to just live a you know, a healthy lifestyle as far as like being able to be social and engage in, you know, eating and drinking. But there's also a performance aspect of it as well. So I think a lot of people are so used to feeling fatigued and tired um, and just running on nothing that once they do implement a reverse diet and their calories are going back up, there everything starts to change but for you know in a positive direction now they're getting strength improvements they're seeing overall performance improvements um their mood is better they're feeling happier um they get their libido back they're sleeping better like all of these uh things uh can result from you know just restoration of calories so you know that has a positive play on then to our training And now those people are in a such better position to actually put on muscle um, and make the changes that they have been wanting, you know, all that time. So you you need to be in a, a, at least a good amount of maintenance calories and or a small surplus to optimize your um, muscle building outcomes. Oh, I just love it that you just nailed all of that for me. And I also love that you took it all the way from like, you know, BMR, RMR, muscle mass, all the way up to, uh, you know, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, exercise activity thermogenesis. This is where I get into debates with people and I just have to stop and just be like, okay, whatever, it's fine. But your your metabolism will adapt down as it adapts up and it's just part of the, the human biology. And I'm so happy that, that you just spoke on that for me. Yes, <laughs> I, I think like so just... many women are afraid of their weight increasing during that time. But Um, I had a conversation with a client just the other day and she was very new to that concept. And she was like, well, can I just limit my weight regain to about a kilo? And I just kind of looked (laughs) and was like, "Um, so you're currently in a completely like glycogen depleted state and now you want me to take your calories up. Now, just the first one kilo of weight regain is probably just glycogen replenishment and the water that's uh, going to be stored with it so yeah. um, you know and then now you have more energy available to actually work hard so a good percentage of that weight that's seen to to go up is probably from lean body mass not just fat mass and I think so many people get hung up on the number on the scale um, but it's such, it's not an objective way to to look at progress it's just a number There's, it doesn't tell us about you know, what percentage of that's fat and what percentage is muscle. It's just a number. (laughs) 
for all the kind of beginners out there who really want to get into lifting but really don't know kind of where to start obviously you know form is important and you probably need to hire a PT or someone who can talk you through that but um in terms of lifting like where would you typically have somebody starting just a really rudimental kind of thought about where you would put them at the beginning well I think probably need the first question I would be asking people is looking into their current lifestyle and their activity um, history you know are they somebody that's you know been sporty growing up but they've just kind of lost touch with it or are they you know they've been very sedentary for most of their life they've never been in a gym um is this such a brand new concept that you know if you said hey we're going to do an rdl like do they know what that is so i think there's definitely an element to looking at somebody's history with lifting and exercising um and then where i go from there probably is going to degree uh, to vary to quite a degree but I think um, for everybody like that's stepping into the gym, whatever you choose to do, it does need to be a realistic, um, you know, number of sessions. So I know, you know, New Year's resolutions, everybody kind of is like, yeah, I'm going to go five times a week. Like that sounds amazing. But like the reality is they've got four children, they, their husband and they own a, you know, several companies and they don't have a nanny for the the first month of the year. And, uh, you know, there's also COVID. The reality yeah. of that person being able to go to the gym uh, five times a week is probably quite low. So just setting realistic targets to begin with um, might be just yeah. two days a week. Commit to that um, and just be consistent with it. And once, you know, you're finding that easy, part of it is just looking and planning out your schedule. So, so many people will say, you know, here's my goal but they won't actually look at the steps that's required to get them to that place. So as simple as what days, where can I actually fit it in with what I'm currently doing? How much earlier do I need to get up if I'm going to do this? And like just committing to it on paper is really important. I think a lot of people make the mistake of wanting to do too much cardio, uh, especially I guess that's kind of been the history for, I know women, especially, you know, it's women do the cardio stuff. Men are the ones that do the lifting. So making sure that the resistance training is a focus um, and the cardio is just there to support maybe mental health and wellbeing. Um, yeah. You know, if your goals truly are towards physique um, and looking like, or something resembling something of a competitor, then cardio is probably something that comes in much later. So just getting into the yes. routine of lifting um, and having that as the primary focus is probably something else that I would say. Okay, and then just a base explanation of what you need to understand about nutrition if you do have physique goals, even if you're nowhere near it yet, but let's say in a year's time or two years' time, you want to look like, you know, you train uh, a base understanding of, of nutrition for people with that goal who really just don't know you know where to start with it yeah I think um the first thing that I honestly have people that I work with um do is write down a list of what their favorite foods are like what do you enjoy eating how do you like to eat do you like to eat most of your meals in the morning are you somebody that prefers to graze are you somebody that likes to eat at the end of the day Um, And just kind of self-reflect on what your eating behaviors are. So that's the first thing. Um, Because when it comes to picking a strategy for, you know, bodybuilding and whether that is either putting on muscle or going through that fat loss phase to reveal the underlying muscle, um, your approach needs to be something that is sustainable for you. And 
everybody has different food and dietary preferences. So that is why we see so many people having such success on such a wide range of different dieting approaches. So, you know, if you really enjoy sweets and baked goods and you like the idea of being able to eat dessert often, then, you know, going on a low carbohydrate diet or a ketogenic diet or something that eliminates carbs to a certain extent or fasting for that matter, probably isn't going to be the approach um, that's going to work best for you. So I think just understanding what it is about food that you like and then choosing an approach that makes sense with regards to food preferences. Then uh, when you're setting up your macronutrient targets, which is part of that, that equation, obviously energy balance is the key to, you know, achieving your goals. If you wish to be losing weight, obviously there's, um, you need to be in a negative energy balance. And if you want to put on muscle, (laughs) ideally you'd be in a positive energy balance. So protein, number one, that's always the first thing, um, making sure that your protein targets are suitable for that goal. And currently the recommendations or the optimal amount of protein um, is somewhere between one to 1.3 grams of protein per pound of lean body mass. Or if you work in kilograms, I know you guys use stones. I have no idea what that is. But I don't work in stones. Um, when so, my clients check in and start, I'm like, no, 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 just give me kilograms. I don't want to know anything else. So Go for on. kilograms, it is about um, two to 2.9 grams of protein per kilogram of your lean body mass. The reason that I use lean body mass is because that is a better predictor of what our um, protein requirements actually are. So once you've got that number sorted and you can really stay anywhere within that range, because some people thinking back to food preferences, they might really enjoy eating a lot of protein. Like I, my habits over the years push me probably onto the upper end of that range, whilst somebody that's brand (laughs) new that, you know, hasn't really um, prioritized protein in their lives you know, they may need to start at the bottom end of that range, but the fact that they're hitting that range is fabulous or find something that's very close to it. Um, And then, you know, however you set up your remaining carbohydrates and fats probably just needs to reflect your um, preferences for food choices. I guess the concept of flexible dieting has probably been poo-pooed a little bit. Um, I guess the, if it fits your macros, Mm. seems to be very, I guess it's frowned upon a little bit because, you know, it just means that you can eat whatever you like and you don't have to consider your your nutritional choices, but that's not true. I think there's certainly an element and a requirement for eating a great diversity or range of different uh, foods because now you're exposing yourself to all of the different micronutrients that are important for our body's day-to-day functioning. So, yeah, I, I, I think I encourage people to include things they like But also just understand that we do need to have a certain amount of dietary fiber if you're dieting, especially like it's going to help with hunger. Um, But it's also going to help with that nutrient delivery and your ability to recover from training. So the remaining calories really just need to be a reflection of the foods you like and making an emphasis to, you know, have a good amount of dietary fiber to help feel satiated and, you know, all the protective um, benefits of having um, a high fiber diet. Yeah, absolutely nailed it. My last question for you, and this is one question because <laughs> I always felt like we had this in common. I think me and you love a drink, and sometimes <laughs> it's like it's not obviously an Aussie and a Brit. Who'd have thought it? No. Um, <laughs> who'd have thought it? But I, it's funny because. I always say to my clients, like, look, like, bear in mind that you've got to get up and train. Bear in mind that we want you to recover. 
bear in mind that alcohol is like a suboptimal calorie intake, but also bear in mind that if you're going to hate life because you can't have a glass of wine, then this is bullshit. So keeping everything in mind, go for it. Um, And I know that there is some research that shows that it can impact hypertrophy occurrences, but I know that you would would drink on your preps until you got to a certain point and then you'd cut it. And I just wanted to, to kind of Ask you, tell me about kind of alcohol and its effects on physique, uh, or if that's something people need to consider, or if it's not something that you would ever be overly kind of worried about. Um, so first off, I just think it's important to know that, you know, alcohol still has a, a caloric value. So if you choose to consume alcohol, you are also choosing to have to make a, a sacrifice or a consequence somewhere else within your diet. So I think a lot of people kind of just bypass that, especially anyone that's brand new. I know for the people that we work with, there's probably a little bit more of a knowledge base around it. So (laughs) that's the first major consideration. If you're going to incorporate alcohol, you need to probably compromise the amount of fats or the amount of carbohydrate that you're having if you want to or have the intentions of coming out and actually hitting a set daily macro target. Beyond that, yes, you're exactly right. I choose to keep alcohol in my diet as frequently as I can. I think I work really hard and I'm generally a very high stressed person and I have a hard time relaxing uh, until I've got the work done. So I absolutely truly value uh, being able to kind of go out and have a glass or two, maybe three um, on the weekends just to kind of switch off because I am very passionate about what I do. Um, So I really need kind of a strong stimulus of you need to relax. (laughs) So if you're thinking about like direct negative effects, there aren't really, there don't seem to be any uh, negative effects as far as ability to lose body fat. Um, So if you were dieting, there's nothing to say that if you don't hit your calorie targets, um, you're not going to be able to lose fat because there's a direct, you know, negative effect. But what it can do is beyond a certain threshold, and it's probably going to be a little bit different from person to person, depending on how you break down and metabolize um, alcohol. So there are certain nationalities where we don't possess the enzyme alcohol dehydrogenase. So, you know, for somebody like that, there's probably going to be a greater negative impact on our performance, um, you know, the following day, if, if that was the case. So, um, and it also does impede mTOR signaling beyond a certain threshold as well. But if we look at two standard drinks, there's quite a few studies now that have kind of looked at strength and performance um, and hypertrophy outcomes, um, and it doesn't ha- seem to have any effects if you drink kind of within a normal, you know, two standard drinks, um, you know, before you go and train. Now, how does that differ if you are going through, you know, a contest prep where you are getting very lean? Well, it's kind of similar to, I guess, the way we look at uh, the explanation that I gave before about having a lot of adipose tissue available to provide energy. The idea behind fat loss is that you're wanting to maximize the, the amount of body fat we lose, but also retain as much of that protein mass. You know, if you're having an excessive amount of alcohol, you're probably going to start utilizing your protein sources as a fuel source. Um, And that would be detrimental to the success of that fat loss because now you're losing an unnecessary amount of lean body mass and also alcohol at high levels interferes with that signaling pathway. So if you're in the gym and you're already putting in a lot of work and now you're having a high amount of alcohol, which is blunting that response, well, you're just not going to get the same gains or potentially retain the same amount of muscle 
if you're consuming a high amount of alcohol. So like I said, there's nothing super negative in small amounts, but absolutely if you go overboard. And then indirectly, you also need to think about um, how it might plan out or pay out um, to your performance and training. So typically, if you are drinking, I know for most of us, and I think about the people I hang out with, we are usually having drinks at the end of the day. So um, how that might actually play out to your performance is that, well, now you've stayed up an extra few hours um, outside your normal routine. And we know that disruptions to our circadian rhythm can actually have pretty, you know, detrimental outcomes on our ability to perform. Um, And it also has a detrimental effect on our ability to build muscle. So I think the context is always very important. So if it's starting to (laughs) interfere with your sleep, that's having an indirect effect on your um, progress in the gym. And for a lot of people, it might mean that they skip a session. So now they're not getting into the gym and their training volumes are going down. So they're not getting the energy expenditure that they normally would. And they're not providing that mechanical stimulus to actually promote uh, retention of their muscle. So there's quite a few pathways or causes, indirect causes that would suggest alcohol is probably not the best thing. But also just thinking about energy provision as well. When you get leaner, this one, this is the last point I'll make. So um, carbohydrate availability. So it was previously thought that glycogen availability uh, wasn't really a limiting factor for resistance training and that it's mostly important for people that are doing more endurance-based sports. Um, And that's based on a couple of studies that we had in bodybuilders where they would, you know, put them through a, a routine Um, take a sample or biopsy of their muscle tissue and then look at the total, the baseline glycogen levels versus what was utilized in the session. And it wasn't really a huge decrease, nothing that would um, limit their performance specifically. But there's been a couple of studies that have come out more recently that look at in depth the different types of muscle fibers. So um, we have like your type 1, type 2 muscle fibers. Type 2 are typically what we use for highly glycolytic anaerobic exercise, which is what um, resistance training is. And then which of the different types of tissues the glycogen is actually being um, used from when we do resistance training. And this most recent study found that the type 2 muscle fibers during um, a resistance training session specifically the intramyofibrillar cells is where all of that glycogen is actually being used. Um, It was about a 58% decrease in glycogen from baseline to the end of the session. So that's kind of starting to indicate that for people that are in a calorically restricted state, so they're dieting, that are very lean and they don't have a whole lot of carbohydrate coming in, that their performance might actually be far more negatively impacted than what we once thought. So I think, you know, where your energy balance is, is important um, part of that equation. How lean are you? And if you're choosing alcohol over, you know, your carbohydrate, then there is the potential for your performance to go down because you're not providing your body with a fuel source that it needs Thus, your training volumes are now going down. So now you're having greater rates of muscle loss during your um, competition than you might have otherwise if you'd chosen not to have that alcohol, but instead choose to have your carbohydrates to, for better performance. So there's a few things in there. It's actually questioned my the way that I might do things in the future when it comes to my trainings. I know that it gets pretty gnarly towards the end. 
that out. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> oh, I didn't know about that last one. <laughs> that's upset me deep to my core, Holly. I know. Um, now I've nice. actually considered like <laughs> rethinking when I do my calorie cycling because I would traditionally save a lot of my carbohydrates and fats for the weekend to give me all the flexibility that I needed to be social and choose whatever I wanted on yeah. the menu. Um, but that would come at the expense of, you know, the workouts and training that I would do during the week. I would have much lower carb yeah. and fat intakes because I was saving it. But, you know, there's a very good chance now knowing that when I was very lean, that probably was actually doing a lot more damage as far as you know, the work output. And if I had have moved more of those carbohydrates towards and geared them at my training, um, and yeah. maybe I wouldn't have lost as much muscle as I did if I hadn't. But I mean, I, I, I'm just me, and I haven't got a case or a control against it. But it would be interesting to see. <laughs> oh, that's a lot to think about. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like it's for you. For you, it's the middle of the afternoon. For me, I was about to go get a glass of wine, and now I'm like, oh damn it. Hey, will you, <laughs> you training we... tomorrow? <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, I am actually late leg day. So that's, that's great. Um, but Holly, honestly, thank you so, so, so much for joining us all the way from Florida. And it was honestly just such a dream come true to talk to you and keep fighting the good fight, putting out such great info with a big smile on your face. And uh, yeah, everybody, if you don't follow Holly on her YouTube or her Instagram, do because she is fucking fantastic and you won't regret it. All right. Bye, guys. Thank you so much. That does it for today's episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. Please remember to hit that subscribe button or that follow link so that you can be notified as soon as new episodes are released. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Chloe for more health and fitness posts. I've been in hospital three separate times. One was the big three-week stay in the coma. Number two was the nerve damage diagnosis. Number three was a surprise attack out of nowhere, and I couldn't breathe properly. You know, perfectly healthy 17-year-old, no underlying conditions. It's crazy. Behind every case, there's a story. Protect yourself and each other. Be antiviral. Hear more at antiviralireland.com. Supported by the Government of Ireland. Podcast Network.